0: Amen. John chapter 14, at least in a New Testament context, introduces to us the concept of the comforter. It makes it clear that it is a title or a description of the Holy Ghost. The same chapter also refers to it as the spirit of truth. And Jesus speaks about this comforter as being sent or going to be sent in a manner that he's looking forward to the event. It's something that hasn't happened yet. And uh, this this sending is not how we often think of sending. You know, we send a parcel, you pack it up, and you ship it off, and away it goes. But uh, Scripture teaches us that God is a spirit. John chapter 4 and verse 24 says that God is a spirit. And it also teaches us that there is only one spirit. So when we read of the Father sending the Holy Ghost... We're not to understand that as God sending something else, but rather it is God dispersing, or we might say distributing himself. He is ministering by his spirit to us. And the the separation of terms or titles relates to what God is doing, or rather the purpose of the sending, not to identify different parts of God. And Jesus said that this comforter would be sent in his name. And that is because he was about to do something. He was, something was about to take place. If you understand the timeline here in John 14, they were in what we now know as the Last Supper, where Jesus was meeting with his disciples and very much very close to, to the cross, to the time of Calvary. And what he was about to achieve through his death, his burial and resurrection made it possible for mankind to receive the Holy Ghost for the first time. And so to understand what is being said in verse 26, maybe to break that down a little bit, is to understand that the Spirit of God was manifest in the flesh for the purpose of sacrifice, which opened a door for that same Spirit to dwell with and in the hearts of mankind. And then Jesus said that this comforter or the Holy Ghost would teach us all things. Uh, We see that in John 14 and in John 16. And people people receive the Holy Ghost from a wide variety of scriptural understanding. You don't have to have a, a bachelor of theology or a master's in divinity to be able to receive the Holy Ghost. You just need to have repented of your sins and have faith to receive and God can fill you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so as many of us can testify today, when we received the Holy Ghost, our understanding was at all different levels. Some things we knew, some things we didn't know. Some of us had almost no knowledge. I've known people that have come into an apostolic church, really not had much of a clue about the Lord or what was going on, but in the presence of the Lord and when the word was preached, they've responded by faith. They've come, somebody's prayed for them, and they've received the Holy Ghost and never really even understood that there was a Holy Ghost until that point. And so they've received it with almost no scriptural knowledge or understanding. And there are some that have partial knowledge and understanding when they receive it, and there are some that have understanding it's maybe not everything that it should be. We, We have to understand this morning that receiving the Holy Ghost does not make us Bible scholars. It doesn't give us access to some secret truths that only a select few know about. But Jesus said that it would teach us all things, and John 16 says that it will guide us into all truth. Now, to understand what that means, Jesus said that he was the truth, and he also said, I think it's in John 17, that may not be accurate, might be a little bit later than that. He said, thy word is truth. He said that the word of God was truth. And so whatever state we find ourselves in when we receive the Holy Ghost, as far as their understanding is concerned, one of its main purposes is to help us to understand the truth that has already been given to us through the word of God. It's not some, it doesn't unlock some magic new mystery, but rather it's to illuminate and to add inspiration and understanding to the scripture, to the truth that we already have. The Bible says in Genesis 2 that God breathed into Adam and Adam became a living soul. Jesus said, I think it was in John 20, he, the Bible says that he breathed on them and he said, receive you the Holy Spirit or receive you the Holy Ghost. It was symbolic of what was going to come. And in the epistles to Timothy, Paul wrote, and he said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we know that word inspiration in the original means God breathed. So there is a consistent unity, if you like, or there's there's no separation between what God does through his spirit and what he does through his word. It's not one lane or the other lane. They're both the same lane of traffic, if I can put it that way. Amen. And so that's why it is so important that what I believe, what I experience and what I preach has to be in harmony with the scripture. If I try to use spiritual experience to justify not obeying the scripture, then my purpose my sorry my understanding of the purpose of the spirit is flawed. Amen. And uh, that's not really what I'm ministering on this morning, but I just felt I wanted to share that and hope that helps somebody. But um, I want to, to to draw your attention to verse 27, if I can, of John 14. Just went a bit haywire on my brain there for a moment. Verse 27 says that, continuing the same thought, that when we would receive this Holy Ghost, that when we, this Comforter would come, so in in line with that verse 27 says peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world giveth give i unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid and for the next few minutes i want to minister on the subject of peace peace amen peace is possibly an undervalued thing it doesn't get everybody jumping up and down and excited but peace is very precious And it's one of those things that sometimes you don't realize you've had until it's gone. And uh, the meaning of the word peace has to do with things such as freedom from disturbance. Have you ever said something like, will you please let me read in peace? Or let me eat my dinner in peace? Or something along those lines. What we're saying is, do not disturb me. I want to be in peace. Peace is also described as a state or a period in which there is no war or a war has ended. And if you, many of you have possibly seen the famous photos at the end of the Second World War of celebration in the streets, of, of excitement and rejoicing because the war has come to an end. There is an acknowledgement that the conflict has ceased. And if you know anything of orthodox religion they talk about the sign of peace. My wife and I were at a, an Orthodox wedding just recently and uh, it was a very structured ceremony. It was a mass and, this was, and that was going on and I was doing my best to follow what everybody else was doing to a point. And, and then at some point during the service, the minister, the priest that was leading the mass said, he asked everybody to give each other the sign of peace. I was a- I wasn't exactly sure what to do, but what he was referring to was shake hands or greet one another with a kiss. And they they refer to that as the sign of peace. I learned something new that day. In case you're wondering, I didn't do that. I I just waited to see what was going to happen and, and, and tried to follow suit. So peace has a variety of applications, but the underlying principle of genuine peace is that conflict no longer exists. Sometimes peace is not really understood for what it really is because you can have two people sitting in the same room or the same place in complete silence, but it doesn't mean that there's peace in the room. There's, there's no words being spoken. There's nothing being thrown. doesn't seem To the outward observer, if you pass by and look through the window, it would seem peaceful. But if you were sitting in that room and a little aware of the context of what was happening, there may be people sitting perfectly still, not a word being said, but nobody would describe it as peaceful because they're aware of the context. And when peace deals are brokered between two sides in a conflict, often between warring countries, warring factions, warring tribes, warring religious groups, all kinds of, of conflicts, when when people get involved as negotiators and they try to broker a peace deal, they may be able to temporarily stop the fighting and so peace exists at a surface level but if you pay any attention to current events over the last or as long as you've been alive it doesn't take much and something triggers that and that which is simmering underneath bursts to the surface again and that that very fragile peace accord is destroyed and has to be at least they try to put it back together again We, as I said before, we we undervalue peace sometimes. There are places in this world where children are born to the background music of explosions and and gunfire. And those conflicts last for generations and they grow up and that is all that they ever know. That is not something that is a part of our society. And we need to take that with great gratitude. We need to be really thankful that we don't live in a a world or in a society that is like that. And I know in a culturally diverse congregation like this, some of you have come from places where conflict was very, very real and and war and and, and those sort of things are are very fresh in in your minds. I I had my hair cut the other day by a lady who came from another country around 20 years ago and told me she still has a piece of shrapnel in her body as a souvenir from the conflict that she was born into in the country that she lived in. And, uh, you know, I've traveled to different parts of the world, not extensively, mainly the same places again and again. And the first time I had the privilege of going to the nation of East Timor, when I was lying in my hotel room, concrete square that I was sleeping in at night, at very close quarters I could hear the rats running in the roof, but a little further away I could hear the sound of gunshots. And it wasn't that far, was, 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 you know, you wouldn't think, oh yeah, that's over the hills and far away. It was close enough that I thought, that's not a sound I'm used to hearing while I'm lying in bed. I'm not used to hearing that. And so we do have a tendency to take peace for granted in a nation like Australia. Sin is the ultimate destroyer of peace. Sin is really the source of all the destruction of peace, whether it's peace among mankind and ultimately peace with God at the beginning of the gospel of Luke we know that when the Lord was born and God was manifest in the flesh the angels appeared and they declared in Luke 2 and 14 glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men and those words often only come to the forefront at Christmas time when there's carols and all that sort of stuff but Jesus came for the purpose Not to end conflict between men or between nations, but really to address the source of that conflict. He came that men might have the opportunity to have peace with God. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we are in sin, when we have sin in our lives, we are in conflict with God. You don't get up in the morning and and put on body armor and reach for a weapon, but our actions our thoughts, our speech, our conduct, the things that we prioritize in our lives are in opposition with the word and the will and the purpose of God. And so we are in conflict with God. And the thing about being in conflict with God is there's only ever going to be one winner in the end. And if you're not sure, it's not us. It's him. And so when we are in conflict when we are struggling against wrestling with God and his purpose we are at war with God but Jesus came to say there is a way that you can have peace with God see people read that scripture in Luke 2 and they sing Christmas carols and their idea of peace is this global thing where people are disarming their nukes and laying down their guns and people are talking to each other that haven't talked to each other for centuries and and all of that is good i'd like to see that as much as anybody else but jesus's purpose was not just about peace in the middle east or or peace in this continent or peace on that continent he recognized that until there was peace between man and his maker there would be no peace on the planet because as long as there is sin there will be hatred, there will be anger, there will be wrath, there will be a desire to steal and take that which is not yours. And a lot of war comes down to that at a global level. And he recognized that that was the peace that was going to make the difference. He said in the scripture we read that the peace that he would leave with us is not as the world gives. That means the world has an idea of peace. The world is trying to bring about a form of peace, but the peace that he offers is different to that. See, the world is trying to fix the surface. The world is trying to get everybody to play nicely and to get along. They're trying to evenly divide all the toys between all the kids so they don't kill each other. That's the world's approach to peace, from the outside in. The Lord's approach to peace has always been designed to be from the inside out. Because if I make peace with God, and I want to continue to have peace with God, I must also have peace with my brother and my sister and my neighbor. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. Trust me, there are things happening in my street, sometimes late on a Saturday night when it's really loud, I especially don't agree with. We've all had those experiences in our neighborhoods. But peace that begins at the level of my relationship with Jesus then affects everything else in my life. Peace that is on the outside that is trying to address the surface level that 's trying to negotiate well if you 'll stop doing this, then maybe they 'll stop doing that, but they should stop first, no they should stop first, and it 's backwards and forwards, really in a lot of ways it 's like small children except they 're government leaders and it 's a lot more serious than a couple of kids disagreeing over who 's having the last biscuit but that 's really what it comes down to is the lord 's desire to address the original source. Of conflict. Let's read Ephesians chapter two together. Ephesians two and thirteen. Ephesians two, starting to read at verse thirteen says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes ye who sometimes were far off everybody say, that's me, I made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were far away, and now we've been brought close. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of petition between us. Now, when you look at the context of this verse, at one level, the context has to do with the fact that there were Israelites and there were Gentiles, and that the Lord, they weren't separate. The Lord wanted to make his church out of everybody on the earth. But at another level, it also has to do with mankind being made close to God as well. Because when it speaks about being afar off, it's not just talking about physical distance, it's talking about spiritual status. God is over here, and in sin, we are way over here. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, those of us that were afar off have been made nigh. We've been given the opportunity to have peace with God. He broke down the wall of petition between us. In verse 15 having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hatred, the opposition, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain or of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain again, there's that that strong hatred word again, and came and preached peace to you that were afar off, and to them that were nigh. We needed the cross of Calvary for us to have the opportunity to draw near to him. Excuse me, we needed the Lord to be willing to lay down his life, that we might be able to put that hatred aside, to put that wall of division aside, and draw near to the Lord. Colossians 1 and verse 20 says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It is no small thing to be at peace with God. This is not something that was easily achieved. But he said that we were what? We were enemies in our minds. How? By the wicked works, by the things that we did, the way that we lived. But because he paid the price several times in those passages, it talks about being reconciled, brought back together. Two opposing forces, two people that were in conflict, one with another, being brought back together not just in some tense standoff and some fragile peace agreement, but not where the debt was taken care of. Because what is different about our conflict with God and the conflict in the world is that very rarely in the world is it one-sided. Now, I know we look at history and we, we say these are the winners and these are the losers, but forgive me if I'm a bit cynical, one side is never whitewashed clean and the other side is all evil. There's humanity involved in both sides of every conflict in history. But when it talks about us and God, he is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. And the flaw and the fault and the failure is all on us. But yet, as much as it blows our minds, even though it was all our fault, just to make you feel good about yourself, point yourself and say, it's all my fault. All right, now we'll teach on self-esteem next weekend. But if it was all our fault, and yet he was the one that moved. He was the one that said, I can bridge this gap. I can tear down this wall. I can take away the hatred. I can bring those that are far off near to me. He was under no obligation to do that because it was all our fault. Sin is on us, not on him. But he said, I want peace. I want to be reconciled to my creation. I want man to have the opportunity to come through that door that he opened through his death, burial and resurrection and to put their sins away and to make peace with God. Amen. There's something precious about making peace with God. You plan on having peace with God in eternity? You need to make it right in this lifetime. There's too many tombstones out there saying rest in peace you got to live in it before you rest in it. You don't just get to do what you want and get buried and go rest in peace. No, you have to live in peace with Him if you plan on resting in peace with Him. Amen. Too often these things are just carved into tombstones to make us feel some sort of comfort. Amen. You see, sometimes when you're in sin, and that's all you've ever known, then the chaos, the distress, the anxiety that the world is afflicted with Is as normal to you as the sounds of gunfire is to children born in war zones. They don't know any different. The sinner that's never tasted the goodness and the love and the peace of God thinks that's just all there is. But that's not the case. Galatians 5 and 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. You see, when you read about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is for others. As the tree, we bear fruit that others might partake of it. Trees don't eat themselves. Apple trees don't eat the apples. And so the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to produce in us is for others. That means to me that when people that don't know Him know you, that they should taste that fruit and wonder what it is that you have in your life. They may not understand. We had a friend, my wife and I, when we lived in Cairns, we we had no kids at that stage, and so we just had a little two-bedroom duplex flat. And we had a friend that I worked with that we we developed a, a friendship with this, this lady. And she would come to our house, our flat, not big enough to be called a house. She would come to our little flat, and she would always sit down and say, it's so peaceful out here. As if somehow that had to do with where our flat was located. She lived on the northern part of Cairns, on one of the beautiful beaches where the houses were miles apart. So physically, there was more peace where she lived than where we lived. The bus drove past our house 24 hours a day. I'm not exaggerating. I used to catch it at 3 o'clock in the morning to go to work. So there was more peace in the natural thinking where she lived than where we lived. But in our house, there was an ingredient that she was unaware of. It wasn't us. We, we weren't, you know, all that. It was the Spirit of God that he had been kind enough to bless us with, to fill us with, and to put in our hearts and in our home. And she would come out there and say, I always feel such peace when I come out here. That's how it ought to be. That's how it ought to be. Amen. And I, there are others that have shared similar comments. That's not about us. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying my wife and I are the source of peace. The source is him. We're just doing our best to connect to the source. And if if it flows through us, it's because of him, not because of us. And that's what it's all about. Amen. But that fruit is for others. But you see, here's the thing. When you've known peace, when you've actually known the peace of God, and then you choose conflict, for whatever reason, you will never find that same satisfaction. Because nothing compares to God's peace. That's why he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. He didn't say, look, the peace comes in a variety of models. I can give you one, they can give you another. He said, no. He said, there's a difference between the two. There's my peace and there's the world's peace. And they are not the same thing. And unfortunately, when you've tasted of the goodness of God, it does not matter how far you go, how fast you run, how high you climb, how deep you dig. There is no substitute for the real thing. Amen. It's a little bit like when you get on an airplane. If you ever had the privilege of flying in business class, it's never the same when you go back to economy. It's never the same. Yeah, it's a nice plane and obviously you hope it's safe, but there's not much leg room. And the person's right, if you're like me, the person's right next to you. And you get this meal and you sort, Lord, should I eat that thing? But then you go and sit in business class and it's like a big old lounge chair. And they call you by your first name. And they bring you a little tablecloth. They give you glasses and proper cutlery and they offer you warm bread. And As you've heard me say before, there's a reason they close the curtain. They don't want the people in economy seeing what's happening in business class. And once you've traveled there, unless you're very wealthy, you've got to go back. I've only ever traveled there on points. I've never paid for business class flight, in case you're wondering. When you've got to go back, it's like, you know, I'm glad to be flying, but... You know, there have been times I've been tempted after the meal's been served to tap the, wait- the, the stewardess and say, is there any leftovers from business class? because it's a whole different world up there. Let me tell you something. The gap between those two is not even close to the gap between the peace and the joy and the love of God and what this world has to offer. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to find a substitute, but if you've tasted of the goodness of God, you will never find satisfaction in this world. Amen. Bless the Lord. I think it was Arnold's Biscuits that they may still say it. They used to say that there is no substitute for quality. And there is no substitute for the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm thankful for His peace this morning. If you're grateful for the peace of the Lord this morning, why don't you just lift your hands and worship Him for a moment. It is no small thing to be able to put your head down on a pillow at night and know that while I sleep, He's got my life in His hands. That whatever happens in this world between when I sleep and when I wake, God is in control. And my life is in His hands this morning. Hallelujah. And so this morning, I want to encourage some people. I know enough of what's going on in people's lives in this place to know that some of you have gone through some hard times. There are battles. There are families that are... Preparing to farewell loved ones for the last time There are some of you that have health issues that are serious and are quite concerning There are others that are under great financial pressure and in need of job security There, there are some of us that are worried about different relatives and family members And parents and kids and nephews and nieces And a variety of other situations that I don't know about But he is our peace this morning Your peace is not dictated to by your environment that's the world's peace the world's peace comes and goes with changes in the environment if they're having a good day everything's great but that doesn't always last and i take something small and that switch flicks and the peace is gone because it's dictated to by our environment his peace comes from within so that means when my atmosphere changes my trust and my confidence and my assurance in him should stay the same does it mean i like what's going on no nobody likes the storm nobody likes the storm we'd all if you give me a choice storm or smooth sailing we're all going to choose smooth sailing but the, the lord said i think it's in john 16 he said in this world you shall have tribulations and then it doesn't even seem to make sense but then he said but be of good cheer how do they even go together here's the news you're going to have tribulations but be cheerful sorry could you say that again in this world you shall have tribulations but be of good cheer because i have overcome the world my peace i give to you my peace i leave with you not like this world gives give I unto you. Hallelujah. It's that peace that keeps us when we're in the storm. It's that peace that when the whole world is going upside down and crazy, and even in our own lives, in our own homes, there's something that you can hang on to. It's the peace of God. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Let's turn that together. I'm nearly done. Philippians 4 and 6 says, Be careful for nothing. That's King James English way to say don't get anxious and stress out about things beyond your control. It's not saying be irresponsible and don't look after your affairs. It's saying don't fuss about the stuff you can't change. That's the New Simon version for you. Be careful for nothing. Don't fuss about the stuff you can't control. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, it's interesting it says that. It says, let your request be made known unto God in everything. That tells me that even when the storm is raging and the waves are high and I'm bailing water out of the boat and I go to him, I still need to find a handful of thanksgiving to put in my prayer. I still need to take some things That God, I thank you that you're able to keep me through this situation. Because when you find a way to thank him, In the storm, it's not some weird twisted, oh, in everything give thanks. It's a declaration that he's still in control. When I can say, God, I worship you in the midst of this storm. And thank you, even though everything's upside down. What I'm saying is you're still king. You're still the master of the waves and the sea. Hallelujah. So don't fuss about the things you can't control. But in everything... By prayer and supplication with a help, healthy handful of thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God. And when you do the first part, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. What that means in everyday languages, it does not make sense. How can you have peace in the storm? How could you still be sure that God knows when everything is upside down? The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Your hearts and your minds. That's why the Bible says not to be wearied and to faint in your minds. That's why the next verse is written. It says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report, any virtue, any praise, think on these things. How do we keep our hearts and minds? We put the good stuff in here. We don't pretend the storm isn't happening. We go back to the book that says, He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. He is my very present help in time of trouble. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemies. When I fall, I shall arise. Does it make the storm go away? No. But it puts the storm in the hands of the one who holds the world. That's the difference. That's why he said that when he arose that he led captivity captive. That means that what bound me is now subject to a higher authority. And whatever storm that I'm going through is still subject to the one that created the earth. That's why when he was in the ship, and we've known the story since we were children, and he was asleep in the boat, the disciples feared for their lives. They woke him up. They said, don't you care about us? He walked to the front of that ship, and he said, peace, be still. And the ocean became like glass. He will not necessarily take the storm, but he will be with you in the midst of the storm. And then in verse 9, Paul said, those things which you have both learned and received... And heard and seen in me. He said, do those things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Oh, hallelujah. Don't take the peace of God for granted. Don't take that assurance that we have that he's with us. You know, there are things we read in the scripture sometimes in passing. You read in the book of Acts about Stephen when he was being stoned. And the attitude and the spirit that that young man was able to demonstrate that's not natural that's supernatural there was a peace and a come you see because if in this life i lose everything if in this life i lose my life if i'm at peace with him while i'm alive then he's still got everything in his hands paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so if he doesn't deliver me i know what's coming That's a peace this world does not know. Amen. We're talking about being at peace with the Lord this morning. I want to read one more passage as we close. Many of you could quote this, the 23rd Psalm. Let's turn that together. The Psalms are great to read because there's a lot of encouragement in them. But there's also a lot of brutal honesty in the Psalms. You know, David, who didn't write them all, but he wrote a sizable portion of them. There are times that some of the things he wrote, he was very candid. He was like, Lord, those that hate me are increasing. He said, Lord, I'm, I'm going down for the last time. I've got no hope. Uh, um, my, my bed, my, he says, I think he calls it his couch, but he said at night he saturates his bed with tears. It's not all happy, happy, joy, joy stuff. It's the reality of life. But you always find that there comes a point, whether it's in that psalm or the one he wrote after that, where there's a but, but God, or when I came into your house, or then I remembered your mercies, or whatever. There's always an, an afterthought that comes with that. And in the twenty-third psalm, it says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters." He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. And if you and I wrote that psalm, that's where it would stop. I'm not going to lack. He's going to take care of me. Restores my soul. Leads me in a nice, gentle, pleasant walk on the green pastures beside the still waters. Isn't God awesome? But there are six verses in this psalm, not three. Because verse 4 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you're with me. you ride riding your staff. They comfort me. And I love verse 5. It says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. In the midst of my storm, of my battle, of my conflict, the Prince of Peace is there. There's a table prepared in the midst of the battle. When everything is upside down, I don't know where my help is coming from. There's a table. He said, sit down, I'm going to give you what you need to get through this. He doesn't say, I'll let you out the side of the valley. He said, when you're walking through it and it's all going pear-shaped, he said, I'm going to get you what you need to finish the journey. Hallelujah. Sometimes he takes us out. Sometimes he brings us through. But he never, ever, ever abandons us. He never, ever leaves us. He never, ever forsakes us. You know, you go go through tunnels and freeways and stuff, and often you'll drive along, and you'll see an emergency exit. Sometimes if there's an accident there, there's there's a way to get out. And sometimes God makes a way of escape. Sometimes He says, trust me. There's a tunnel going under the water in Sydney Harbour, and I've seen those emergency, and I'm thinking, where do they go if there's water above us? Don't understand that. But God makes a way of escape or He sets the table and says, I'll bring you through. I'll give you the strength you need. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I wonder if you'd stand with me this morning. Just lift your hands and worship the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. The peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ.